Watch podcast. I'm Aaron Berger, a Nebraska Extension Beef Educator. For today's Beef Watch podcast, we're going to discuss an article that's from the July issue of the Beef Watch newsletter titled Annual Forage Options for July or August Planting. To discuss this topic, I'm joined today by one of the co-authors, Dr. Mary Janowski, who's a Nebraska Extension Beef System Specialist. Thanks for joining me today. Oh, thanks for having me, Aaron. Dr. Janowski, as we have this conversation, we're sitting here in early July, and for your part of the state, they've been under some real dry conditions in May and June, uh, caught some rains in some parts now, but some folks are going to be looking at a scenario where they may have harvested their wheat and now have some moisture in the soil profile and are looking at something to come back with to plant to either graze or to harvest as a forage crop. Uh, we also talked that there may be some scenarios where people had crop failures due to drought, thinking here of corn or, or soybeans, and then maybe perhaps now have some moisture to work with. Let's just discuss some of the options that are available to folks as they think about what they might plant as a forage here in July and August. All right. Well, I think I think the easy one to start with is if you either had an annual forage uh, like rye, and now you're thinking about planting something else, or you harvested wheat, and now you're thinking about planting something else. The options are probably wider due to herbicide restrictions. You probably have some more options there. So the first question really gets down to how do you want to use it, right? So do you want it for hay? Do you want it for silage? Or do you want it for grazing? And and the answer to probably what are the desirable species changes depending on the use. So let's start with hay production. So I think everybody is fairly familiar with sorghum sedan grass, right? The hybrid, um, it can be a yield producer and can produce, you know, three to four tons an acre. And if anybody's tried to make hay out of it, you probably know that it can have a very thick stem, which means that you need to try to do something like crimping it to be able to get it to dry down. It's a challenge. And the other option that's kind of fits in that same realm would be like pearl millet. Pearl millet does like dry feet, so it works a little bit better on sandier soils. Some of the hybrid varieties of pearl millet can yield as well as sorghum sedan. And there's a bonus on pearl millet in that if you say you take one cutting and it's early enough to get regrowth, you can graze that regrowth without worries about prussic acid. So it adds a little bit of flexibility into the system that I kind of like. So that's kind of a difference between sorghum sedan and pearl millet, but the similarities are the thick stem. So a couple things to do. One is to consider harvesting at boot stage. I know a lot of people like to go later because they want the bigger yields, but you're going to have smaller stems. You're going to be able to get it to dry down more quickly. You can probably not get a second cutting on it, just to be honest, at boot stage, but you will get regrowth that you can potentially graze if you're planting at this time point. If I was planting earlier, I could do double cut, you know, not a problem. So that's something to consider. The other thing to think about is stem thickness is related to planting density. So oftentimes, like I can get the same yield by planting a lower plant population, but if I go a little bit higher on the seeding rate, so we talk about 20 pounds an acre for like sorghum sedan, the higher you go um, and even up into 30, it's not really going to increase your yield, but it decreases thickness of the stem, which helps with quality and it helps with the dry down. So those are kind of some things to consider. 
one of the other ones you mentioned in the article that I think really applies to the western half of the state for sure would be foxtail millet. That's one that's uh, pretty drought tolerant and pretty water use efficient. Uh, just talk about that as an option as well. Yeah, so foxtail millet, um, I kind of think of a, it's a low risk, low reward situation because foxtail millet is going to be much lower yielding. So we talked about three to four tons an acre for sorghum sedan or pearl millet. Foxtail millet, you're probably going to get one and a half, maybe two ton, just to be frank, an acre off of it. But it's pretty cheap. So it's low cost in terms of seed cost. Um, It's very quick in terms of maturing. It's like a 60 day maturity, 45 days, actually, I'd say 45 to 60 days for it to get to full maturity, which means that it can get low quality very quickly, but it also doesn't take a lot of moisture to make it go. So if you get a little bit of moisture, you can plant it. At least you got some biomass there. If you watch it, you can try to harvest it a little bit earlier to get a little bit of quality. Most people miss it, just to be frank. It has smaller stems, so that's an advantage because the hay does dry fairly quickly. So pluses and minuses to it. The big one is that, like I said, it's pretty low uh, reward in that it's going to be fairly low yielding and usually lower quality because we just uh, don't keep up with how quickly it matures. Let's talk about the silage option a little bit. You mentioned the sorghum sedan for hay, but Straight sorghum could work well for that or pearl millet also as a silage crop. Talk about that as an option. Yeah. So forage sorghum is going to yield better than sorghum sedan or pearl millet. It doesn't mean you couldn't plant either of those for silage. You can. But if you're looking for the most tonnage, forage sorghum is going to be a better option because it's going to yield probably four to six tons of dry matter, maybe. And for those of you who think in uh, with full moisture, which I don't, it's 11 to 17 tons an acre at 35% dry matter. So if you think about that, it can be a good yielder and it's honestly very water efficient. So that's an advantage in this situation, especially for Eastern Nebraska, where if you get enough moisture to get it up, we likely will have a crop to harvest at this point, especially given the current weather predictions. I'm hopeful <laughs> that we get some rain. <laughs> But forage sorghum is probably the higher yielding option. It can be good quality if you harvest it, you know, at the right stage, you know, 60 to 65 TDN, 6 to 8% crude protein. And that's really targeting soft dough. And to be clear, one of the reasons why we target soft dough is that that, that seed gets hard. And when the seed gets fully matured and gets hard, the the energy content will show up in an analysis, but the cattle can't use it. And honestly, I, most people do not have the ability to kernel process to the extent to get that fine seed actually broken up to where the cattle can get a hold of it. So it shows up and people think they have a higher energy feed stuff than they do. So shooting for soft dough ensures that the cattle can make use of that grain. Let's talk about the grazing option for some folks there pastures have been used up and they're short on pasture, but now maybe some moisture, they could grow something to graze as we think about trying to get to that bridge between now and crop residue. What would be some good options there? Yeah, actually, I got one other thing I need to talk about with silage because I didn't think about it until just now. But given this later planting, this July planting, you have a little bit of a challenge with 
the moisture content of that plant that you either have to cut it and swath it and let it dry down. If you're talking about forage sorghum, sorghum sedan or pearl millet, all those are going to have too high a moisture to just direct cut unless you wait until a freeze. That's one thing that some people will do. They'll wait until a freeze and let it actually start to dry down. I will tell you that most people still overestimate the dryness of those plants because the leaf material dries up fairly quickly, but the stem is still quite wet. So make sure you're actually chopping it down and checking it. Otherwise, you're going to get something that's not a very good silage product if you put it up too wet. So moisture management is a little bit of a challenge with this later planting because you don't have quite the same drying conditions, if that makes sense. Okay, so now let's move on to grazing. For grazing, I think the the question really becomes, do you want to graze now? Honestly, you really have a 45-day window between planting and any kind of grazing. So if you think about right now, if I planted today, I couldn't get on it until August 15th. So then you're really looking at, you know, can I graze it from August 15th until, let's say, like you said, I got stocks or or something to go to. Well, then you're probably still looking at grazing over the frost period. So that reduces your options if you want to graze during that period. If you were thinking about that, honestly, you want to think about millets and Pearl millet. Now, not all millets are the same. That's another thing. I often get a call and they're like, well, I planted millet. Well, as we talked about, foxtail millet is quite a different cat than pearl millet. And there's Japanese millet and there's a lot of different millets out there. But pearl millet is still probably your best bet. Like it was for hay, it's a pretty good option for grazing in these situations. And it doesn't produce the prussic acid, which means you can graze it during that frost period. So that would kind of be my personal preference. I have grazed Japanese millet and planting it late like that. It probably will get to full maturity and you will get seed heads on it if you have it into, you know, late into the season. But pearl millet is going to yield more. So that's probably the why I would choose that one. And I would say that in that case, you know, we typically suggest you don't start grazing until it reaches um, 15 to 20 inches in height and allowing six to eight inches of stubble for regrowth. And so rotational grazing, even if you're not going to start until August, mid-August is probably a good plan. And the reason I suggest that is that I think you will get another bout of regrowth in most of Nebraska. Now, not far in the Northwest because you guys get a little bit colder more quickly than we do, but you should get some regrowth and get some additional grazing off of it. Now, you got other options, right? If you just want to graze in the winter, that opens up a whole bunch of possibilities. (laughs) Like after the frost, now it's okay if I put in sorghum sedan or sedan grass, for instance, those will uh, not be a problem now, right? Because I'm after the frost has killed it and that gets rid of my prussic acid issue. So let's talk a little bit about that. We can do kind of two different scenarios. If I want high yielding, but lower quality grazing, then I'm probably going to put in the warm season and put it in now, right? Put it in July, early July, get as much biomass as possible, and then graze that stockpile. Either strip grazing, it would be ideal, or swath grazing, it would be another potential. And that's just make use of all that biomass that you're going to get produced. Remember, we were talking about the hay and it producing, you know, four tons. Well, Now you've got that for winter grazing. 
It's going to be a little bit lower quality, of course, 50 to 55 TDN if you let it get fully mature and six to eight for protein, but that works pretty doggone good for a dry cow. Um, so if you don't have those stocks to go to, this is a good option to get some, some tonnage produced. If you're looking for higher quality, then we're going to change our mindset which is maybe we're actually going to delay planting a little bit, shoot for 1st of August to August 15th and put in something that's cool season like oats. Um, it's kind of my favorite. You could do spring triticale or even spring wheat, but oats are probably going to yield best and maybe even add Nebraska in there like rapeseed, which is my personal favorite. You could do turnips. You could do radishes, although the cattle don't seem to like the radishes as much as uh, turnips or rapeseed. And the quality is going to be really high. Actually, it's going to be high enough for a lactating cow, especially if you wait till about the 15th of August. And that's because um, you're growing into cooling conditions. And so those plants don't put on as much of the lignin, which reduces the digestibility of it. So the cattle can actually get almost everything out of that plant, if that makes sense. So lactating cows can even gain weight on this stuff and growing calves will gain, you know, two pound a day in the winter on that. So this is a really great option if you need high quality, but it's going to be lower yielding. You're probably going to get, uh, you know, one to two tons of biomass, whereas you would have got four if you had planted the warm season a little bit earlier. So planting the sorghum sedan, if that makes sense. Yeah. I think the other thing that jumps to mind for me, and you mentioned this, just the value of gain we're going to see potentially on weaned calves and the opportunity to grow them on something like oats or spring triticale this fall, early winter, uh, they can do really well on that. And you have some data to show that. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty amazing. I mean, we can get down to one and a half pound a day if, if we get a lot of precipitation in the cold winter months, just because they get wear hair coats. But yeah, we get two to two and a half pound a day pretty consistently. The other thing that I focus a lot on the grasses, and I do want to point out the reason I focus on grasses is because they are the biomass producers. It doesn't mean you can't plant other things. And last year, we did a study where we actually end up grazing a mix that a producer had planted. And it was mostly pearl millet, German millet, and foxtail millet in combination with sunflowers. And then they had some forbs and some legumes in there, which honestly didn't amount to much. But what was interesting to me was watching the cattle graze. We had a set that we were actually strip grazing, and then we had some that we allowed access to the full field. And the sunflowers was kind of something that the cattle selected for quite consistently. And I decided I wanted to see, because they were taking off the heads, I wanted to see what the nutrient content was. And those heads, they had about 7% fat in them. So they were actually quite high energy. So if you were strip grazing and you had this situation where you had this little bit lower quality sorghum sedan grass, and you had some sunflowers in there, it's a nice little energy supplement. Um, so I do think there are some options, uh, but they have to be competitive with the grass. And in this case, the sunflowers were. There's a lot of things that you can plant that just really can't compete, if that makes sense. So if I'm thinking about it, grass is king, 
But yes, there are some options to add some diversity and potentially even improve the forage quality. That's why I like the brassicas in the later uh, summer planting is because they actually provide more energy into that forage as well as uh, a little bit higher protein. So they're kind of like a nice little concentrate package, if that makes sense. It's like providing a supplement to those oats. And we see consistently, it's only about a tenth of a pound to gain difference, but we see it. So, and you can cheapen up your mix a little bit because buying some of those cheap brassicas like rapeseed can even reduce how much your seed cost is. So why not, if that makes sense? So I would look at being careful about adding too much into a mix and raising your seed costs. Uh, but there might be some options like sunflowers into warm seasons or brassicas into the cool seasons that can provide an advantage. Talk about those brassica seeds just a little bit, because I think for folks who may not be familiar with that, the number of seeds per pound is quite amazing. It, yeah. does, it doesn't take very much to go with some oats. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's definitely the thing. So we talk about with oats, actually, we've got some new data. So Darren Redfern, Jerry Valeski, and Mitch Stevenson collaborated on a project where they planted oats and looked at what the seeding rate needed to be in terms of how it affected biomass. And I will tell you that if you read most of the publications, they'll tell you something like three bushels or basically about 100 pounds an acre is what is suggested to seed. But their new data pretty much across the state shows that 50 pounds is enough. So that's one thing just to tell you right now, you can you can reduce it down to 50 pounds an acre for oats. But the brassicas, as Aaron, as you mentioned, the full seeding rate, meaning if I was planting nothing but brassicas, would for most of them, so like for collards, for purple top turnip, for any of the forage turnips, for canola or rapeseed is about five pounds an acre. The radish seeds are a little bit bigger. And so I think their full seeding rate is 10 pounds an acre. So you can see the difference already. We're talking about 50 to 100 pounds versus five to 10 pounds. Now with that, if I'm making a mix, if my my preference is to plant about 50 pounds of oats and about three pounds of either rapeseed or purple top turnip. I like the rapeseed better. And the reason I like it better in the fall is that it doesn't produce that bulb. And so I can manage the grazing a little bit better, meaning they like the leaf and they eat all the leaf to begin with. If you put out those turnips and then you have to force them into eating the bulbs and then I have no ground cover left (laughs) because they ate all the grass first. So in, in the case of, of that winter grazing, I really like the rapeseed because they kind of like it. And so they'll select it and they eat the leaf off and I get more out of it, if that makes sense. So three pounds of that of rapeseed, 50 pounds of oats. That's my currently my recipe for high quality forage for lactating cows or growing calves. You mentioned a little bit this planting window as far as, you know, late July till the 15th of August is kind of that critical window. Just talk about how important that is because it is quite yeah. amazing. Uh, you look at it at 10 days, two weeks difference in planting time. It really does change what we grow in terms of biomass. Yeah. So, so we're battling, especially if we're talking about the higher quality, lower yield, we're kind of battling two things here. One of which is we want to plant early enough to get as much growth as possible. However, if we plant too early, oats or the small cereal that you plant will try to go to head. It'll try to go reproductive. So um, we can, if we plant too early, really late July is kind of pushing it a bit 
that if it stays warm enough, long enough, those plants try to go reproductive. And that's not what we want because the quality won't be there and neither will the yield to be frank. So if I'm planting like in that first week of August up until like the 15th, I probably would suggest going and planting a late maturing variety, which means a forage variety of oats. So the cost is going to be a little bit higher. The advantage is you keep the quality and you get extra yield. If for some reason you're planting later, like the 15th of August and beyond, up until about September 1, after September 1st, you might as well plant something that's going to overwinter and get some spring grazing because you're not going to get much for fall. But in that case, I actually say you don't need a forage variety because there is data and it suggests that you don't get any advantage in terms of quality or yield at that point. So you might as well go with you know a mid-maturity which is going to be most of our grain types and just plant that. And you're going to get similar biomass and similar quality for less cost. So that's kind of how I think about my planting days. You're trying that balance between quality and yield. And the earlier I go to try to get more yield, the more I have to worry about the quality. And thus I'm going to try to go with something that's going to hedge my bet, which is that later maturing forage variety. One of the things we haven't talked about is the option of planting both a spring annual and a winter annual together and something we could get some grazing out of this fall, but then maybe come back and get some grazing next spring before we go back to a cash crop. Yeah. Talk about the options there. Yeah, that's a um, that's a good point. And, and there are people who are interested in doing that. So Jerry Valeski did some work on that a few years ago. And really my take home from that was that if I'm planting early enough to plant, the winter hardy or the winter sensitive species, so like oats, and get enough biomass out of it, then I can plant in a winter hardy species, let's say like rye, that's going to overwinter and I can graze in the spring. But basically, he kind of showed that whatever I get in the fall basically reduces what I get in the spring, such that his yields were about equal, if that makes sense. So I got about the same amount of grazing. It's just the distribution is different. So he didn't really see a huge advantage of, say, planting a mix versus planting a monoculture of oats in one area and a monoculture of, let's say, rye in another area and using them for that purpose, if that makes sense. And it does change the management a little bit in my mind, because if I'm managing um, the mix, then I want to make sure I don't graze out my rye at least too early in the season until it goes dormant. Um, or I might actually affect how much the the timing of regrowth, if that makes sense. So there's options and opportunities to put the mix in, but there's also reasons why you might consider having two separate things and managing them to optimize each one, if that makes sense. So I, I don't think that there was a huge negative, but I'm not sure there was actually a huge positive either. Anything else on this topic you'd like to highlight today? I guess one thing that comes to mind for me is just thinking about some of these failed corn or soybean acres, thinking about herbicides, what you can come back with, anything to be aware of with that. Yeah. So I think you hit the nail on the head when you said herbicides. So if you did have failed corn or soybeans, uh, you got to really take a look at um, what herbicides you applied. And in particular, if they failed due to drought, whatever you did apply likely is going to have sustained activity 
um, because you haven't had the microbial degradation. So soybeans are really hard because soybean herbicides, there's, there's not a lot of options in terms of looking at the plant back restrictions. Either it's going to be much more challenging, but corn, you know, you could, could do something like going and drilling corn for forage um, you know, so actually not doing it on 30 inch, but doing it on 15 inch, doing a little bit higher population. Or a lot of times, if you look at corn herbicides, sorghum is on the list and often has very short plant back restrictions on many of those herbicides. So that is an option. And because sorghum is so efficient in terms of moisture, I really like the idea of it if you're willing to do a silage. So you can graze it. I'm not saying you can't. It's usually not as the advantage of it is not as big because you're going to waste more. So the yield advantage comes in when you silage it over top of sorghum sedan or pearl millet. But in this case, if your plant back restriction only allows sorghum, then you can also graze it. It's possible. It does produce prussic acid. So you do have to worry about grazing it when it's really short or grazing it when during the frost period until it actually gets fully killed out. But it's an option and it's something to consider. And usually the seed for sorghum is cheaper than corn. So that might be a reason to consider it unless you're going to try bin run corn. Yeah, I think that's, you know, something that's, again, out of the box, not something we would normally think of, but it is an option and maybe a scenario where if you need forage and that's that's what you can do, then it may be your best choice. Correct. And I think the big thing is figuring out what you put on your corn or your beans and seeing what options you have, because it does eliminate a lot of options. Dr. Janowski, anything else you'd like to highlight today in terms of managing these forages, grazing risks they need to be aware of as they think about putting cattle out on them? Well, I mean, I get a lot of questions, uh, especially on annuals and this year with nitrates. And um, if people have questions about anything, planting, grazing management, any of these things, I'm always happy to have a conversation. You know, things are not always cut and dry and simple. And so having that conversation about what to think through um, to figure out what's the best option for you is one of the things that I actually very much enjoy because I think uh, it helps you get the best thing for your operation. So feel free to give me a call, send me an email. We can have a conversation. Well, thanks again for joining me today. Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity to provide some information. Well, for more information on the topic that was discussed today, you can look at this article. Again, it's in the July issue of the Beef Watch newsletter titled Annual Forge Options for July or August Planting. I would also mention at the beef.unl.edu website, there is a number of resources, videos, articles on this topic, NEB guides. So a lot of good information there, a lot of resources. And as Mary said, her contact information is also at that website. So I encourage you to utilize her as a resource and also other extension specialists and educators across the state.